Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. We're here. Hello, and welcome to another episode of ILC Book Club. Hello, Michael. Hello, we're back in the more familiar setting of my home office. Yeah, we couldn't be bothered to go into the office today, could we? Uh, well, it's not quite that, but <laughs> for sure we're back here. <laughs> it's Alex's fault because he's been on the lash in Benidorm. Well, lucky him, I say. Yeah, if only it could happen to us. Definitely. Well, I've, as you can tell, I'm a bit hoarse because I've had a big weekend in Skegness. <laughs> and at the age of 43, standing in bars till three o'clock in the, uh, in the morning... It's just completely wore my voice out. I feel absolutely fine. <clears throat> well, it's because you drunkenly shout over everyone else. Do, do you know what it is, actually? It's because I'm old and you forget how you have a different voice when you're in a pub with loud music. Yeah. It's that voice, isn't it? Yeah, all of that. So today, we're on a new book, aren't we, Mike? We certainly are. Selling the Cloud, I believe it's called. Yes. A playbook for success in cloud software and enterprise sales. Now, I'll tell you some thoughts just as a start of a 10 on this one, which is I kind of don't mind this book, actually, and I think there's some good stuff in it. Um, book's called Selling the Cloud. It's by Mark Petruzzi and Paul Melchiore, who we are meeting this afternoon, Mike. I've got to tell you, what a track record he's got, that guy. Both got top track records. Absolutely. Like, when I started reading the book, I thought, oh, my God, this is clearly an absolutely top guy. Yeah. He is going to be a top guy this afternoon. Absolutely no doubt about it. The the heavyweight track records, to be fair. The title's a bit misleading because it's not really a playbook. What it is, is a collection of learnings thrown into a book. It's a collection, actually, of very wise words. Yeah. I mean, it's not my favourite, but it's full of wisdom, this one. I thought, just John, your point on the title, I thought this was going to be a book about how you can sell Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure. Or a cloud solution. How you can sell cloud solutions. I thought it was going to be a much more technical manual than it is. Yes, and it's not actually. It's some guys who have got superb track records as salespeople, and I'm sure are absolutely excellent, Mm -hmm. who went from selling client server software to cloud software. And, And I think it should have been better titled. It could have been memoirs of two mega hitters. And then actually I'd have liked the book a little bit more, I think. Yes, it could have been. I think you're absolutely 100% right. It, it could have been written as a memoir. It could have just been a light holiday read that you'd have read through uh, uh, if you were... If they'd written it and said, stuff we learned over 25 years. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Brilliant. But it's not a manual, is it? Not in any way. There's no technical side to it. You've got quite a few clients at the moment where a lot of their demand is mid-20s, up-and-coming. If a mid-20s up-and-comer said to me, should I read this one, I'd definitely be saying yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Just because it's good to have that kind of wisdom. Let's start. So I'm on page 11 here in the book, Mike. Okay. Old school, hard copy. It says here, Paul's passion lies in technology sales leadership and building go-to-market strategies. Now, that's an all right statement, but I am going to have a dig at it because I think that's a disingenuous thing. Why? Because well, my passion is rock music, leads rhinos and golf. Uh, do you know, I'm going to disagree with you on that, actually. I really like being an IT sales recruiter. Uh, 
I really do. I really do. I like Formula One. I like all the different martial arts. Uh, I'm a bit of a hippie lefty when it comes to charity, but actually I, I do really like being an IT sales recruiter. Would you say that being an IT sales recruiter is your number one passion in life, though? If you had to write a book today? It's up there, with no doubt about it. Yeah. There's part of it, and, and they do talk about this later on in the book, and, I, and you and I both have very strong opinions on this whole concept of being all in. Yes. And being a salesperson by design and not being a salesperson by design, how that to an extent is damaging. And I think what's interesting is in the, you know, we're in the opening stanza of the book, Paul's passion lies in technology, sales leadership and building go-to-market strategies. I think we've hit an era where we've got a new generation of people who can't and won't ever identify as salespeople at that depth. Yeah, I mean, it's a deep comment, isn't it? But I don't know. I think the good ones still will. Do you think that there'll be identity sales professionals? So I'll tell you something. So we were in Skegness this weekend, and one of the guys that, that I went with, who's a mate of mine, immensely wealthy, just ridiculous. Nice guy, lovely guy, very rich. And I said to him, why'd you get into jiu-jitsu? And his boy's 18, and his boy was with us as well. And he said, because I spent my whole life working, and I just didn't do anything with the boy. So me and the boy took it up when the boy was 15, and that's what we do. And actually, one of the reasons he has been as successful as he has is because he's truly committed his whole life to doing that. Now, you could argue that, you know, he's now a guy and he's... What, to doing what he does from profession? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Okay. Now, you could argue that that's the gamble that he took. And I mean, now, to say he's rich is an understatement, just ridiculous. But actually, he got that because he was committed and he was all in. And I do agree with you that I think the new generation of sellers are much more aware of, you know, having family life and, you know, one year's paternity leave and all that kind of stuff. But I do think it will be at the detriment to their career. Now, should you put your career before your life? Well, that's your personal choice, isn't Correct. it? Correct. But I do think it will really affect a lot of the sellers. And actually, the sellers who will do the best are those who will spend most time at it. A consequence of that will be their family lives, won't it? It's a funny one, because I'm doing a lot of research for a new book at the moment about sales careers. And uh, I'm doing about two hours a week. I reckon I'll have it knocked out by the end of 2022. And one of the books I'm reading as my research is a book called One Person, Multiple Careers by a lady called Marcy Alboha. And what she talks about is having slashes and that the modern career is made up of slashes, salesman slash, investor slash, athlete slash, charity worker slash. So what she's saying is if you enter a dinner party, actually, in answer to the question, what do you do? It should be, I'm a salesperson slash whatever slash whatever. Does that make sense? The answer is, what do you do? I do loads of stuff. Because actually, yeah. on that point, I have found that good sellers have empathy. And empathy is based on experience of lots of different things. Correct. And being, we've talked about this before on the show, about being multidimensional people. But I did think, I just I picked up on that as a statement. And I thought, ah. Can I, t- can I tell you the first thing I've picked up on? I will be taking this up with the authors. Literally, on the first paragraph of the first chapter, he uses the term smarmy used car salesman. Yeah. And I just hate the stick the car seller gets. I thought that was pure, absolute snobbery of somebody who, luckily enough and not through design, got into the best-selling market there is. The thing I absolutely 
frankly fucking despise, Mike, is the anti-sales sales training movement. Yeah, I mean, I despise that as well, but I do despise this. Oh, smarmy car salesman. Uh, yeah, oh, right. I can't abide it. This whole, we're sales trainers, but being a salesman and being salesy isn't salesy because that's not what salespeople do anymore. Shut up. Completely agree. Yeah, I think it's unbelievably disingenuous, and I think it's misleading to the nth degree. And the amount of people who drink that Kool-Aid and commit career suicide drinking that Kool-Aid. I'm a salesman, but I'm not a salesman. I'm not like other salespeople. All right. Oh, what are you like? Well, I don't sell, and I don't like to persuade people to buy things. Oh, right. Okay. And we see that in a lot of books on the show where it's, you've got to be a salesperson, but don't be a salesperson. Well, do you know where we see it from? So he references companies here, and he goes, Salesforce, Microsoft, Cisco, Oracle, Zoom, SAP, and DocuSign. Now, are the people who work there, are they the difference, or is the brand that they work for the difference? I suspect it's quite easy to work at Salesforce and not be a salesperson, because what's your client going to do, leave anyway? Can you imagine what the first 10 salespeople at Salesforce will have been like? They were sellers, weren't they? They were brutal. Can you imagine what Mark Benioff's first 10 sales hires will have been like? Well, I think, and I'm not looking at LinkedIn, I think actually <laughs> the first UK I think the first UK salesperson for Salesforce in the UK was Andy Jacks. Right. And if you look at his background, I've not got it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he was something like BTC then Veritas. Now, I've never spoke to the guy ever, but you look at that background and think, right, so he worked at PTC and Veritas, and he left Veritas in the mid-2000s I bet he was an absolute animal of a salesman. He'll make some money. Well, but the point being is, to your point, he was a seller, 100% cast iron seller. And to your point, I suspect Salesforce now doesn't necessarily need to have that kind of animal because they've got such a dominant position. So everybody can wander around going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we just let the clients buy it. I, I bloody bet you do. We just let the clients buy it? Well, I bet they do. Probably, quite possibly. You know, if you've got Salesforce CRM, what marketing automation tool are you odds on to buy? Pardot. 100%. I bet you're 70-30 to buy Pardot. So if you're the Pardot salesperson, can you go in and offer just good advice? Most likely, I think. Yes, a different game. And then we've got this forward by Gerhard Geschwantner. And it's a score occasional wins professionals create consistent results. Oh, a bit trite, that. And then he talks about these five Cs of successful salespeople. Curiosity, creativity, credibility, communication, and courage. What do we think of the five C's? I think it's missing persuasive. (laughs) Yeah, that's my issue, really, is I felt very quickly we're going to go down this route of be a salesman, but don't be a salesman. Yes, completely agree. But actually, you and I both know, sitting in our little crow's nest here above the ocean of the sales industry, that the ones who really make it are unashamed sales professionals who persuade people to buy stuff that they might not ordinarily have considered buying. 100% agree. 100% agree. They're the ones whose careers endure. Completely agree. Rather than going with the trend. So I'm on, I'm on page 16 now. Um, oh, I'm just going to cover something before you get there, actually. Go ahead. We're, we're on different pages, obviously, because you've got it hard copy and I've got it on my Kindle. Yeah. But he goes, sell like you. If what you do every day is not in line with who you are, your performance will suffer. Fair enough. Yes, but I, I completely think it's absolutely right. But it sort of goes against the grain of the book, really. It does. Because that's not what he says throughout the book, really. And it's interesting, because one of the things I'm thinking about a lot in some of the early chapters of the book I'm writing at the moment is this whole concept of should you be in sales 
one of the chapters is called Should You Be Here? So here's one then for you, Johnny. So you know my daughter, honey. Yeah. Should she be in sales, do you reckon? Well, it's going to be a difficult one because there's a lot of different facets to Honey because she's got a lot of very good ones, notably she's very determined and steely, uh, which she gets off you. Does she have an ebullient, charismatic personality? I don't spend enough time to know. She might be a real character in the classroom when her parents are there. Well, well she never seeks approval. So she never. So ebullient characters are normally approval yes. seekers. She just don't care for that at all. That, that would stand her in good stead. So, that, so then the question really is, is, what does make a good salesperson? Because if I think about, you know, one of my favourite clients, and you know who, to whom I'm referring, she is an instant out the box killer. She would abs- this book. She would literally, if I'd bought it for her, tear it to shreds. Yeah, <laughs> she'd say, she'd post it back to me. Yeah, she'd post it back to you, highlighted with stickers on it, and a complete critique saying, "Shut." Say, don't ever find me a salesperson like this. That's what she would do. Yeah. Now she is an archetypal out the box seller, no doubt about it. One of my other clients who you know, uh, who has been on this show, he's quite a quiet guy, really. Mm. If you met him, you'd think he was a lawyer. But actually, his character trait is different, isn't it? Because he's like a seller. So what does a good seller make? They're different. Oh, he's an epic student of the craft, though. Yeah, but he doesn't have those characteristics. And should he be there? Yeah. Now, but I know he went through a long, dark tea time of his soul when it comes to his sales career at one point. In his early 30s, nearly quit. And I'm going to take credit for talking him out of it. Actually, he probably owes you some money. I suspect. <laughs> no, a pint would be nice, but I have a, a very clear memory of talking him out of quitting. But he went through a long, dark tea time of his soul as to whether he should be in the industry after a very, very rough job move. Well, you see, you do see that often, don't you? So, getting back to the book, he talks about negative self-talk is the biggest barrier to success. Yeah, what do you reckon? It's, it's a barrier, it's, but it depends what negative self-talk is, because I actually think paranoia is a very healthy thing to have as a salesperson. I, I think what he's referring to is, you're not good enough, you shit, you suck. You're going to fuck this up. Client's a dickhead, he hates you. That's alien to you, because that shit never crosses your mind. No, never enters my head. It says, unsuccessful people spend too much of their time ruminating about the negative past, which causes them to give up on their dreams. He's right. My issue with all that is, let's leave that to Tony Robbins, shall we? Yes, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> very good point. That was my issue was, go and buy a copy of Awaken the Giant Within. It's bloody brilliant. Some of it's dated, but Tony Robbins kind of does this better than you guys. I'm going to repeat that book title because a lot of people don't seem to have heard of it. The book is called Awaken the Giant Within. It's a top five must read for anybody particularly salespeople, but anybody. I'm rereading it at the moment for about the eighth time. It's absolutely superb, that book. Yeah, it is. So I'm on page 16 here now. It says, keep the spark alive. Cloud software sales is a wonderful way to live a great life. We were taught in business schools that stocks should trade at 11 to 18 times earnings, not revenue, but the ticker doesn't lie. Opportunity for gains in this industry has never been higher. Uh, let's get it right. The world's gone mad, Mike. In what way? All these companies that are trading at 11 to 18 times earnings, not revenue, this is a, a lie. The whole global economy at the moment is a lie. Loads of companies valued at billions of dollars that don't make money. It's nuts. So I just thought that was a ridiculous thing to say. And they've fallen for the mad lie Kool-Aid of it's okay to not make money. Yeah, I mean, I was going to write a LinkedIn post, actually, how I think that a lot of these VC-backed tech companies it's just like a massive bet, isn't it? It's bonkers. I mean, my, I play golf. Paul Hague won't mind me saying this. 
I played golf with a guy called Paul Hoagie, CEO of a company called Black Dice Cyber. And we were talking about this on the golf course the other day. And uh, we were talking about the valuation of some of the companies we know. And Paul's a bright guy, so he'll do research. He'll pull books off company's house and stuff. And he'll be like, so company X has been valued. The VCs have put 100 million in. I've pulled the books off company's house and they don't actually make any money at all. It's crazy. It's like a mad collective madness at the moment. Now, I'm not going to complain because it's good for me and you. And it's keeping mini-me down at university. It's paying my mortgage. All is well with the world. But let's not get carried away. This is a bubble. It's amazing how uh, the candidates fall for it. So many candidates. Yeah, I want stock. What are the ramifications of there being stock? Why is there stock? I want to join a VC-backed startup because they all knew somebody that was the first employee at Google in the UK. But actually, a lot of these companies are on very thin ice, I think. Pricey, I've jumped into the Rivian IPO yesterday. I'm late because I didn't get into the initial IPO and I've bought it as a, a leverage spread bet. But the reality is, how much money do Rivian make? How much profit have they made? None. None at all. Not a penny. Do you know, I've never even heard of them, actually. It's just borrowed cash on borrowed cash on borrowed cash on the promise of jam tomorrow. Indeed. Anyway, let's get back to this book, actually. Right, so let's have a look. Even the most talented salespeople hear no more often than they hear yes. I put, really, in this climate? I'm less sure. I think a lot of people aren't hearing no. I think at the moment there's a lot of salespeople out there who don't know what no sounds like. Yes, it's interesting. I've got a client that I do a lot of work with who are an excellent company, and I said to him, I, I met him for lunch about four or five months ago. I said, what's it like at the minute? He said, it's pretty easy, Mike. <laughs> He did. He was nice about it. He said, it's pretty easy. It really is flattering us. Luckily, we sell what people want to buy. He said, but I've been doing it 20 years. This is the easiest I've ever known it. I had a client say to me during the first wave of the pandemic, sold a very relevant technology. His words were, this is all a bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, what do you mean? And he said, I've earned that much money in the last few months. I'm a little bit embarrassed. I don't like to talk about it. I know the guy. He's a very modest, nice man as well, isn't he? Yeah. He said, he said if it weren't for you, you, you know, I'll talk to you about it, but I'm, there's not a lot of people I can admit how mad it is. I've made that much cash. But back to your point, I don't think many people are. I say this hearing now, and I've said this a few times actually on LinkedIn, the market is too good to have a bad job. Yes, that's a really valid point. You know, if you're listening to this show, if you're listening to this show and you've got a bad job, just phone me immediately. As long as you're not rubbish. Yeah, you've got a bad boss. It's too good to have a dickhead boss. It's too good to have a bad job. It's too good to have to tolerate anything that's wrong. Yeah, and you are seeing a lot of candidates now, I think, who are coming onto the market, you know, why are you looking for a job? Yeah, my boss gave me a bit of grief yesterday, so I'm out. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing because it's lulling people into a false sense of security. And of course, the IT industry will dip at some point because it's a market like any other. And you do wonder what's going to happen to the good time Charlies, really. Did you see the poll I put on LinkedIn last week? Friday. I think you might have gone early. Friday. I put a poll on LinkedIn. It's had two and a half thousand votes. The poll was about somebody I'd spoken to who'd had a bollocking off his boss on a Friday night. Right. And I said, is it okay to dish out a bollocking on a Friday night? 86% of the two and a half thousand people have voted no. 14% have voted yes. But that's very endemic of what we're saying, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. About the market. 86% of people say, you can't tell me off on Friday night. 86%. Yeah. Only 14% of them have said, yeah, whatever. If you've been naughty, you've been naughty. So let's talk about the second chapter, Velocity and Grit. Uh, okay. 
I think they are very important characteristics of good sellers. What page are you on? Uh, I'm on 21, actually. So we've talked about sales as being a lifestyle. They talk about that. Sales is not a job. It's a lifestyle. And we, we, we're kind of onto that, aren't we? Yes. But as I've said, I don't think this generation will make sales a lifestyle. No, I don't think they will. And I think it's very easy to, I mean, assumedly these two guys have earned an awful lot of money. Yeah. If you look at the companies, well, Anaplan went public, I think, didn't it? Tips for nurturing your sales passion. What do you think to this? Focus on helping customers, not selling them. Keep in touch with past colleagues and clients. Stay mentally strong. Your mindset will drive your sales. I thought that's all a bit glib and facile. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the book's quite glib, though, isn't it? I mean, they're all valid points. Keep in touch with your old colleagues and clients. Yeah, okay. Focus on helping customers, not selling them. I don't really like that. Um, I don't know. I do, actually. It just feels a bit disingenuous. I, th- I think, well, for our job, it's different, isn't it? You know, I've got a working with a top-right Gartner vendor at the minute. Literally, they are like a megastar prospect. Just megastar. You know who it is. Um, how did I get in there? I sold and I sold and I sold and I sold. No two ways about it. I got in there. But actually, now I'm in there, even though we've not placed anybody with them, am I going to sell to them or advise them now? In that second state, I'm going to advise them, actually. I'm going to give them good advice. I'm not going to sell them a candidate. No. I'm going to help them find the right candidate. But I think, what about the ones that are new clients? The ones where you have to win? That's my point. To get a new client, you have to sell hard. These guys are a very, very highly coveted account. No doubt about it. They only use one recruiter in the UK and now me. And they sent me their signed terms through yesterday. Which is a great thing, isn't it, when you're in your home office on your own with your sore throat from your big night out in Skegness to get the signed terms of a thing. But actually, your point being, how did I get in there? I sold and I cajoled and I persuaded and I looked at all the different angles I could use to get in there. Now I'm in there, they'll get advice. That's what they'll get. Correct. I'm going to deliver on the promise that I gave them. Correct. I just wish we'd be a bit less disingenuous about this whole, you've got to help customers. No, you've got to win customers. You've got to win customers and then to keep them, you've got to help them. Yeah. You've got to win customers. And I think some of the best sales and some of the best clients that we have and that you have and that I have have been clients that didn't want to work with us, that felt that we were the wrong supplier for them. 100%. Where we have persuaded and pushed. I have pushed certain clients where after I have pushed, they have said, well, thank you for being pushy because actually you were right. And I don't like this whole help them, help your customer. Well, sometimes helping your customer is telling him he's wrong and telling him that he's got to buy off you and that you promise him it'll be all right. Well, it's interesting on the telling them they're wrong thing. So I've put up a, a poll actually on LinkedIn because we're all banging to polls, aren't we? And a, a prospect said to me... Well, it's the only thing that charts on LinkedIn. I know, yeah. Uh, that and a bit of F1 actually. And a prospect said to me, he said, right. So I met him online, whatever. And at the end of it, he said, well, if they don't sell anything in the first three months, we're going to fire them. I said, are you going to tell the candidates that? He went, no. I said, right, here's where you're at. If you don't tell them that, that's just completely wrong. He said, oh, we'll tell them then. I said, if you tell them that, nobody's going to come and work for you. Now, actually, I've never heard from them since, (laughs) as it goes. But at some point, you've got to tell people the truth and suffer the consequence, haven't you, if that's what you believe. And you also know he's a hooky prospect. You've qualified each other out, haven't you? Yes, but he'll use another recruiter. Yeah, well, there was a client I wanted to win a while ago, and I really, really wanted this particular piece of business. And he was insistent on six-month rebate terms, 100% six months. Always a problem. 
Well, it's always a really, really worrying sign, isn't it? Yeah. If you're bothered about rebate, there's a reason for that. And I walked away and he walked away and he was stunned that I'd walked away. I then looked on LinkedIn at who he'd hired and he'd hired literally the worst salesperson in the industry. But he'll dispose of that person in the next month or two. Yeah. And he'll get his recruitment fee back. Yeah, of course he will. He'll do it over and over and over and over. Until he finds one that manages to sell something in the first six months. Correct. So velocity and grit. Yeah, velocity and grit. I think those two things actually are very important. I think they have that right. This is a really interesting one, isn't it? It says, they quote uh, Fred Becker, selling is the easiest job in the world if you work it hard, but the hardest job in the world if you try to work it easy. I actually wrote here, I used to agree but I'm not in as much agreement as I used to be. Because I actually think the top guys now are determinedly lazy, or at least in the future, the really talented ones are going to be determinedly lazy. Yeah, I I get your point. It takes us back to the excellent book, Tech Powered Sales, doesn't it? Yes, I think that there's a new concept here, which is not hard work. It's working hard at being lazy. Well, the book I really hated, actually, was Four Hour Work Week. But everything in that book's right, Mike. Work hard at not working hard. Well, it's a separate conversation. There's lots of stuff in that book that's not right. The thing that's not right about that book is the title, Four Hour Work Week, because we do a lot of very four hour work weeky things at Inwood, but we both still manage to work a 50 odd plus hour week. Let's not get into that book because if we could fall out about that one, <laughs> terrible. Those are terrible. And then he goes on here, they're going about have an excellent process, not a playbook. I think there's a lot of conversation about that, though, because a lot of good companies have got playbooks. Yes, they have. And I think you're missing the bit because we've talked about velocity and grit, but we haven't really talked about velocity and grit because I do think grit is important. Yes, completely agree. As I've said, my thoughts on hard work being a, oh, yeah, you've got to work 60 hours a week, bust your ass. Like I say, I'm, I'm 100% convinced in five years' time, the top sales guys will work incredibly hard at not working very hard, but they'll still work very hard at it. They'll just get more leverage out of tech, I think. Yeah, but grit, I think, is very key. But I'm less sure, you know, you and I made our bones in a world where anything less than total, pure grit was failure, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. I, I don't know if that sounds relevant now. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? It's probably not relevant in 2021, but something's going to happen, isn't it? So in 2023, if you've not got it to call on, you're going to be in a difficult place. Well, when we've gone to war with China and there's no electronics coming into the country and we go into a weird little recession. All of that kind of stuff. I think you've got to have grit in reserve, haven't you, to call upon? Although you might not always necessarily need it. Yeah. And then they're saying, in our experience, the most critical part of the sales process is the discovery process said the guys that worked for big enterprise software vendors that were big branded and well-marketed. I, I can see where you're going with that, but I still get their point, actually. Do you think? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Because if you think about when this guy, did he work at SAP or somewhere like that? Was he SAP's first US seller? Literally, their CVs are just like a litany of enterprise vendors. Although we'll get them on the show today and they'll say, oh yeah, I went to that company when there was four of us. That's going to be a point, yeah. You know, they were selling this technology when it wasn't quite as well known and it was probably a new paradigm. So I suspect, actually, that they probably did need discovery. Now, if you worked at Salesforce, dear discovery skills need to be probably not as good, I suspect. We're obviously going to get sued by Mark Benioff here, aren't we? <laughs> no, no. I don't think he cares about us. Maybe he'll come on the show. Maybe he will. Maybe he's got nothing better to do with his time. Uh, you know, there's some really good stuff in this book. When is the last time you worked backwards from your goals and made a roadmap to determine how you can realistically get there 
What are you doing every day to ensure you're taking a step towards your goals? I mean, that's a gem. Yeah, it is a gem. It's just very obvious, isn't it, when you've read all the sales books that we've read? It is, but, and it's like I say, that this book is a collection of wisdom, isn't it? There's no doubt about that. I think a lot of readers could just skip past that. I mean, I did this recently. I just wasn't happy with where my head was at. And I spent quite a lot of time over a weekend really thinking about what my goals are. I created a little vision planner that's in my day book every day, what I want, da 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 And then I sat down and went, right, how am I going to get there? The plan that we've got on the board is part of that, the one that's behind you. And that, in and of itself, it's like, literally, it's like pure adrenaline, that. You know, I know a very um, successful guy in the security market, self-made guy, multi-gazillionaire, and going to do it again. And uh, he's going back a long way because he used to have a leather folder that he used to take to see clients, you know, to take notes and stuff, which I'm sure he doesn't have anymore because who does that apart from 90-year-old bank managers? (laughs) Um, but, But in his leather folder, he had a cutting that he'd taken out of the newspaper of a house advert that he wanted to buy. Wow. And that house advert lived in his leather folder. So every time he opened it, that fell out. And when he sold his first company, he bought the house next door. Wow. Fair play. I mean, fair play. He made it so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about excellent process, not a playbook. I think it's semantic, that. I don't think it is. I think they're different. I think that I think their process and their playbook are very different things, actually. Well, playbook's a collection of do this, if, then, do that. If then do this and say that. Now, one of my clients who's recruiting for a sales director, uh, managing two sales managers, he's very much from the playbook school of thought. Yeah. He's joined this company as head honcho. He's going to recruit a sales director who's going to force that playbook upon the salespeople. Medic. Uh, Yeah, it is medic driven, yeah. As a process. Well, no, because medic's a process, but actually he's got a playbook. What, around medic? That he also wants to install. Yes, a playbook around medic. Maybe that's why he's struggling to fill the job. Um, I think he's struggling to fill the job because he's not paying enough, actually. Right. Um, but then I look at one of our other clients, who's this massive AI, VC-backed, body body bar They don't have a playbook, but they do have a process. There's a process to follow, but with nothing premeditated to say or do. And I think there's a difference. I think in an enterprise selling process trumps playbooks. Yes. Yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head, actually, because the guy that's got a playbook, his average order value is probably about 50 grand. Well, then fair enough. So it's not an enterprise sale. I think there's a distinction, isn't there, between the two? Yeah. And then he goes on, but that's his point. I agree with him. Then he goes on to say, prioritize your pipeline. It's your lifeblood. Yeah, he's right. That's a snippet, like you said before, that's a snippet that you could skip past. Yeah. And it's so important that he's absolutely right. This is a really experienced top guy who's made boatloads of cash, joined some top companies, been part of them when they flipped, and he's just given you a little pearl, but it just kind of skips past it. Prioritize pipeline, it's your lifeblood. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, if you're a direct sales rep, learn this skill, and he's talking about canvassing. Learn this skill early and invest your time wisely to ensure prospecting is a core competency of yours. Now, this is a top guy with a top enterprise track record, and he's saying, listen, you need to learn how to prospect. Couldn't agree with him more. Absolutely right. Yeah, I'm on page 41 now. They talk about Jeff Lau, CEO of N3. The book just sort of kind of goes in this weird direction a bit, where we talk about some guy, and then we move on to the next chapter, but we don't really learn much about this guy. And it says, Jeff believes there's a reason many of us in cloud software work past our financial needs 
We want to use all of our hardened experience and case examples to pay it back by paying it forward, brackets to other people. I just don't buy that. I, I think that's unbelievably unimaginative. I can never get my head around that. When people have had really good careers, they've made loads of money, they've got loads of success. Oh yeah, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm just going to keep in the game so I can pass my knowledge on to others. I don't buy that. I think some people do self-actualise in that way, actually. Do you think some people really do? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely, 100%. I'm sure they do. Do you not think that's profoundly unimaginative? I think it's a bit sad, really. Yeah. I think it's just a bit sad, isn't it? Don't get me wrong, Mike. Some of the most satisfying points in my career have been coaching and developing others and seeing them flourish. And I do genuinely. If you said to me, put a gun next to my head today and say, listen, you're going to meet your maker today, mate. Let's talk about your working life. What have been some of the most satisfying parts? I would say, listen, there's been times where I've taught people to do the job and I've coached and I've developed them. And actually, I look back and I'm very proud of it. But that's not why I get out of bed in the morning. That's a whole subject about different people want different things. Yeah, it is, I suppose. You know, you look at some of the big business leaders. Alan Sugar is a good example. Why is he in the game? Because he's just in the game, isn't he? He'll always be in the game until the day he dies. Correct. I don't think Alan Sugar would have one memory of coaching, developing and teaching somebody that he's proud of. I don't think he cares one jot. Fair enough. Let's get him on the show. Yeah. When you achieve the growth in your career and become a sales leader, that one line really annoyed me. Why? Because of the assumption that growing is... That leadership is growth. A lot of people do that. I think that's a terrible mental shortcut. I think that's re- I think that's disastrous. Uh, that's going in my book. I think that's disastrous thinking for a lot of people. That's a personal thing, though, isn't it? That was just his personal viewpoint, really. Well, part of my research, I think, I'm going to do for this next book, Mike, is I'm actually going to spend some time looking at people's careers and looking at people who moved into management and whether those moves worked out for them. And I'm actually going to create some stats. I'll have a look at maybe a couple of thousand LinkedIn profiles, and I'll say, right, this guy moved into a leadership job. Did it really work out for him? This one did. Did it really work out? Uh, I think it's a fallacy that leadership equals growth. Growth equals growth. It's a very deep-rooted one, though, isn't it? So my sister was you know, a very bright person, and she became a manager. And like, I, I think it's probably my dad's proudest ever moment. Oh, she's a manager now. <laughs> I was like, well, who cares? But that's just an old-fashioned viewpoint, isn't it, from a certain generation that then just gets ingrained in us. Oh, you should become a manager. It's like something from the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, it is, yeah. Absolutely. It's like we're sitting under Arkwright's looms, catching spinning jennies and putting them back on the loom. Well, the manager got the house, didn't they? The manager got the biggest house. Yeah, you're going to like Saltaire is a very good example. Yes. Of different size houses for different levels of position. And those really nice terraces, that's where the leaders lived. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And then obviously the really big houses are where the owners lived. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So uh, chapter four, then, is about authenticity. Let me get to that. I'm on empathy, chapter three. Fair enough. So just on chapter three, I'll tell you what I didn't like. There's this little bit here about women in sales. I thought it was a sexist and patronising. Do you know what's very interesting about that? One of my clients is something to do with female ambassador for the IT industry, something like that. I can't remember the exact title. Yeah. I took a screenshot of that and sent it to her. What did she say? Well, uh, I'm meeting her actually in a couple of weeks. And I said, what do you make of this? Couldn't help but think that was a bit patronising, really. And she just sent me a laughy face back. She said, we'll talk about that over a beer when we meet. So it would be interesting to see what she thinks about it, because she's very keyed into all that. 
I just thought the less we can look at that and think about that, the better. It's a bit of a drop ball, I thought, on their part. The way it's worded, I thought, don't like that. No, I'm not, not into that. If you think your primary task is to sell, think again. Your primary task is to listen and to move the process along in a way that helps your customers succeed. I, suppose, I thought that was glib, semantic, silliness. Then it drops another gem. Remember that every single interaction matters. A gem. Bang, yes, completely agree. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you had a young set, right, tell me, I'm going to start my sales career. Things to think about. Every single interaction matters. That's a gem. It is, yeah. And then the next, what was the next chapter, Michael? It's about authenticity. If you can fake that, you've nailed it. Bro, don't fake it. <laughs> Be what you are. Tell people the truth. Yeah. Well, that's authenticity, isn't it? Just be what you are. Be what you are. If you don't like me, you can bugger off. Be yourself. It may seem too simple, but we promise it's effective. It's very hard to be yourself, though, Mike, when you first start out. When you first start out, it is. And one of the things that I think where you develop a level of accomplishment is where you finally realise you can be you. It's interesting. So in our household, we've got two cars like most people, but... My car's in for a service tomorrow, actually. And since it was last service, it's done 567 miles <laughs> in a year. So that's how little I use it. So if I ever go and see a client, I take my car, just because I need to drive it. Uh, so it sit on the drive and it's 13 years old. And I met a prospect about four months ago, met him in the car park. He looked at my car and went, is that your car? I said, yeah, it's 13 years old. He went, right, right, fair enough. And as I was wandering in, I said, uh, he, was, he was joking about it, very nice. And I said, listen, if somebody didn't want to use me because I've got a 13-year-old car, they're not my client. I'm not interested. Don't care. And I think that piece of authenticity just brought me straight into that guy. You know, we get on absolutely brilliant now. But I wonder, you know, in the world that we live in, where everyone's wearing a Rolex and driving a BMW, actually how authentic that appears to the end user buyer. Because if that is authentic, then what message does it send to the end user buyer? But if it's inauthentic, what message does it send to the end user buyer? Because there's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses in IT. Well, in life, I mean, we live in an unbelievably inauthentic world, don't we? We do, created by social media. Yeah. I mean, never has the world been less authentic and never has it been more difficult to be authentic. I agree. And how do you convey that as a salesperson? As a human. Yeah, actually, the one thing we all crave as humans is authentic connection with other humans. Yeah, well, you know, I've got a theory on this, actually. Personally, I like people who are congruent with themselves. Yeah. So like this thing in Skegness is interesting. One of them is a multi-gazillionaire. One of them is a care worker. Very bright guy. Got into care when he was a student. Uh, and he said, oh, I really like doing it. So we're out for dinner. And uh, one of them goes, let's go to the best restaurant in Skegness, which as it transpires is a Weatherspoons. It's spoons. Um, yeah, yeah. So I sat around and this guy wants a bottle of wine. The other guy goes, listen, I can't afford a bottle of wine. He went, that's fine, I can. Well, that exchange of authenticity is brilliant. That's why those two guys get on. Yeah. One goes, I want a bottle of wine. The other goes, well, I can't afford it. The other guy goes, well, I can, I'll pay. But my point is, Mike, authenticity is it's vital. And customers sense that authenticity without realising what... Subconsciously. Yeah. Subconsciously, you know whether someone is being congruent with what they are. I think that, you know, we talk a lot and we pan the younger sales generation a lot, me and you. And we give them a hard time, but I think that's a really tough thing for this current younger sales generation. Don't you think the younger sales generation is more comfortable with being authentic, though? No, I think they are profoundly so focused on what they think is authenticity, it's inauthentic. Maybe I don't deal with those guys, then. 
Because I'm not finding that really at all, I must say. <laughs> I'm an individual, but actually I'm doing absolutely the same as everybody else. None of these kids know who they are. Don't know. I don't agree with that, actually. Not the ones I've been dealing with, I must say. I think they've been very congruent with who they are. Yeah, but I don't think you know many kids who are 19, 20 who are going to be in sales in three years' time. I don't know any 19-year-olds. I know one, actually. And that generation, they have no idea who they are, and they won't have any idea in three years' time. They are in a mess. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Therefore, when we are aware of our why, we are able to better connect and sell to others. When you're in touch with your true north, you're more likely to find an employer that aligns with your values. Interesting thought. If your values do not line up with the values of your company or product you are selling, it is unlikely you'll find any sustainable success, despite the fact many of us compromise our wife and money connections or acceptance. A gem. Yes, I do agree. People end up in these companies, and actually they're compromising their, their whys. And then they wake up one morning and realise, Christ, I hate it. To illustrate the point, consider how, how many would-be musicians become lawyers to please their parents or the mechanics who work in their parents' business when they dream of a different life. Matt Johnson. Yes. Out being his authentic self, isn't he? He is, yes. Yes, I completely agree. So he's right. Authenticity matters. But what it also means is, and this is the point, you know, I, I, and I'll probably quote these guys maybe in my book, is it comes back to I think there's a lot of people in sales who shouldn't be in the game. Yes, there are. But we don't really deal with them, though. Uh, I don't. I can't ever think of a time where I have placed... I do, because I do a lot more stuff in healthcare. Well, that's probably the case. Yeah, I mean... I mean, And it's full of profoundly reluctant salespeople. Right, fair. Well, that's a fair comment, because I don't do anything with, with the healthcare sector at all. Whereas you do a lot more in very clearly, deeply commercial jobs. I was trying to cast my mind back, if I can remember engaging, so treating somebody who's a candidate who shouldn't be in sales, and I don't think I did. I can't remember having done that. Whereas I speak to plenty. Where I sit there thinking, why are you in the game? What are you doing here? Why are you here? Maybe you should name and shame them in the book club. <laughs> Didn't get sued for that. No, I don't think so. I'm on page 75 now. They talk about Bill Campbell. I'm on 79, actually. Oh, there's a good page coming they, they up talk, for you, they, Johnny. They talk about Bill Campbell, Trillion Dollar Coach. I have to tell you, I read the book, Trillion Dollar Coach, one of the worst books I ever read. Do not read it. Do not buy it. It was awful. Uh, <laughs> um, what page are you on? The, the header that I'm looking at, and I'm just waiting for you to talk about it, is learning to be a storyteller. You must have loved this bit. You must have loved this bit. Well, you know, I like this. I think the good salespeople are good storytellers, and good stories win deals. Well, he talks about connecting through stories. So human beings are moved by stories. We crave storylines and characters to which we can relate. Storytelling is the importance. Now, the word story, my problem is the word story. Story is made up. They're not referring to made-up stories. They're referring to... you. And no, they're not. They're referring to reference and experience. They're referring to the use of metaphor and allegory in order to win a deal. Uh, yeah, yeah, they are. They are. I mean... And human beings have, since time immemorial, bought metaphor and allegory as a way of being taught and persuaded of things. Yes. That's because human nature, and it's, it, it couldn't be more innate to our human nature, is... We love stories. Kids love stories. Kids love allegories. People love metaphor. It mainlines straight into your unconscious mind and stays there. I knew you'd like it. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just don't do it as much as you. It's how you use it. But if what you're doing is telling a lie, like I'm watching this show at the moment, Price, and you'd like it, called Dope Sick with Michael Keaton. And it's about the opioid epidemic of America and how... A company called Purdue Pharma created a drug called OxyContin, which they claimed wasn't addictive, but actually 
they created what effectively was a nation of drug addicts, particularly in some of the rougher parts, you know, like mining towns and stuff where people did physical tough work. They just created junkies everywhere, people who were injured. You'd go and see a doctor about your leg, he'd give you Oxycontin. You'd be like, wow, this is amazing for four days. A week later, you'd be addicted to drugs. It's mad that my doctor on the leg thing, he suggested I had ibuprofen three times a day for two weeks. I said to him, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Now, in fairness, my leg didn't hurt for two weeks. The next Monday, I was desperate for ibuprofen. And it was only ibuprofen. Yeah. Well, anyway, so there's a great scene in it where they start hiring salespeople for, I see, this pharmaceutical company. And there's one scene where there's one doctor played by Michael Keaton where he's being interviewed on stage at a conference by his sales rep. And the doctor's telling a story about how he wishes he'd had OxyContin for his wife who passed away of cancer. And the sales rep tells a story about his parents who died of cancer. And then the sales rep's having lunch with the pretty sales rep that he's been trying to smash for a while. And she says, I'm really sorry that that happened to your parents. He went, oh, no, it's just a story. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she goes, I've never found you more attractive. That's not what they're referring to. They're not saying make up a big, fat, juicy porky. Uh, Yes, I completely agree. They're saying use stories to illustrate your point and that the good salespeople do do it. But there's bits I don't like. For example, personal anecdotes. It's always helpful to establish common ground with your prospects. Sharing a personal story about your life or day that is relatable is a good way to build trust. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not into that at all. Yeah, and then he drops a gem. Overcoming objections. Address a prospect's objection by relaying a story about a former customer who felt a similar way and overcame it through purchasing your solution. Feel felt found. Yeah, feel felt found, innit? But, or telling a story. And fair enough. And then I'm on to page 89 on problem solving. I didn't really follow much at this point. The book had lost me. In fact, I actually wrote on page 92 and 93 the words yawn at the top of each page. <laughs> <laughs> I found it hard to read this book. And you know, it's not because it's a bad book. It's not a bad book. No, it's full of gems. But I did find it quite boring. It's a tough one. It's going to be a tough one to score at the back end. Right. Number six, chapter six, resilience. Resilience. Embracing and learning from missteps to become a better salesperson. You know what's interesting? So I've recently placed a guy, sent him out three times, and he was unsuccessful three times. And he said to me, Mike, am I doing anything wrong? I said, I don't think so. He said, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a loss analysis with all of those three companies that I was unsuccessful with. That's resilience. He obviously got his fourth job. Of course he did. Like he didn't just get it. He absolutely nailed it. That's resilient. He's tough. Yeah. He thought, I am not going to give in. Interestingly, the guy was in the either the SAS or the Marines and someone shot him. Wow. Yeah, he got shot. He said he was sat on the back of a boat chasing some pirates and they were miles away, just sort of shooting in the air. He said... Through pure good fortune, one of them shot him with a machine gun and it shot him in the arm. Wow. I know, yeah, amazing that, isn't it? But point being is, he's a resilient man. Yeah. By nature. It's his nature to be resilient. But can you teach resilience though, Johnny? Can you learn it? This is a really interesting one, isn't it? Um, I think he learned it from being in the army. Can you teach resilience? Look, why do... People send their kids to posh private schools in the middle of nowhere, like Sedba. Because they think it's the right thing to do. No, it's because they know it toughens kids up. Part of it is because they know the kids, you know, 
Gordonston, have you ever seen Gordonston? It's in the middle of the Scottish Highlands. They just sort of make them hard. They make them mentally hard. So can you teach resilience? No, I think you raise resilience. And you decide. There's a, I think there's also a point where there are decision points about resilience, about what is and isn't acceptable to you anymore. It's a little bit like, you know, I'm a miles better golfer than my handicap. But what actually happens is, you know, I also blow up and don't recover in competition. Why? Actually, I've not been very resilient. I get a bit sulky. And by the time I've realised I'm sulking and decide to be resilient, it's too late. But I'm also resilient enough to know that I've got to work on my resilience and that that's not acceptable and I'm going to work on it. The answer to your golf actually is not, and they do say it in the book, is not focusing on your negative past. Correct. But I'm resilient enough to say, I'm going to work on that resilience issue. Or not focusing on your negative past. Correct. If you had a psychologist walking around with you saying, yeah, Johnny, you lost the ball, whatever. Move on. So what did you make of this title? Don't focus on closing. In many industries, being dubbed a closer is the highest accolade a sales professional can achieve. So what we're going to do, Johnny, is you're the client. Uh, Johnny, I've got this candidate. He doesn't rate closing. Do you want to see him? <laughs> look, look it, oh yeah, I'll interview him tomorrow, Mike. He sounds great. It's all it's all a bit uncomplicated, isn't it? You know, it's very easy for these guys to say, "Don't focus on closing." With sales, at the end of every year, there are prizes handed out. Simple as, aren't they? Those prizes come in the forms of commission, and the person who earns the most commission wins. End of argument. Completely agree. Joy drops the mic. <clears throat> so. If you can get loads of commission without closing, without giving a client a nudge that they should possibly sign right now, or giving a client a reason why they should sign right now, if you can do that, go knock yourself out. But the competition, the game, is all about who made the most money come the end of the year. And something he doesn't cover really, which surprises me, is closing isn't just getting to the end of the process and saying, do you want to buy it? Closing is getting an appointment. Closing is getting a further meeting. Closing is getting an agreement to do something. Closing is, will you introduce me to that buying influence? Having met you today, do you believe we're a credible potential supplier? Yes. Great. I need you to introduce me to so-and-so. Are you going to do that? That's closing. No, I'm not. Why not? This tier one vendor that I want, I've been dealing with the, the head honcho, the sales guy, but actually recruitment are heavily involved. Maybe a week ago or something, he said he was going to introduce me to somebody and he hadn't introduced me. So I said, listen, why haven't you introduced me to that person? And in fairness to him, he said, well, because I don't think X, Y, Z. I said, right, so if I can demonstrate X, Y, Z, will you introduce me to them? He went, yep, that's a close. Correct. And I think we've got to be very careful with this whole don't close people, don't push people thing. We've got to be so careful with that. I think that is nuclear hazardous waste. Yes, because closing, like I say, it's often a small thing. One small question is some part of the process. Gaining agreement. To do stuff, yeah. Confirming agreement to move a sale forward, confirming agreement to take a next action, that's closing. That's closing. Absolutely, 100%. I completely agree with you. We've had a good meeting today. Do you intend to take this further forward, yes or no? Completely, yeah. And I'm sorry, but the people that are, that are at the top of the table when the prizes are handed out at the end of the year, they, they tend to be those people that do those things. Exactly. Do you want to interview the candidate? And I also think that they, they've done a chapter on authenticity earlier on. But I think talking about not closing is very inauthentic and disingenuous. Of course it is. What am I here to do? I'm here to get you to buy something. Full stop, that's it. I think that the most inauthentic, disingenuous thing a salesperson can do 
is get involved in this whole concept of I'm not really a salesperson and I'm not here to sell you. I think that is unbelievably inauthentic, disingenuous. I actually think that's the new cheese. Completely agree. I think that's the new car salesman, the new slime. Completely agree with you. I think that's more slimy than a two-tone spat car salesman, Mike. I completely agree, Johnny. Because you walk onto the lot and you think, right, I know what he's doing. Is it to sell me a, a, a... Literally, I would rather engage... Correct. I would rather engage this whole, I'm not wearing a suit, I've got a big beard, I'm not here to sell you, I'm your advisor, I'm here to, to be your friend. I think that is the new cheese. Completely agree. It's the new slimy, disingenuous, two-tone spat. It really grates me, and they're the ones I don't deal with. Those candidates. Are, if you're one of those candidates, just don't phone me. I'm yeah, not interested. Don't, don't call us. We don't want to work with you. And some people will say, Mike, that makes me and you dinosaurs. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. I actually wrote that that's the new cheese somewhere in here. Here we go. Take, he says, no one wants to be strong-armed into something they do not want or need. Not taking no for an answer is not a basis for effective selling. And I put, no, but being determined to sell something you know is right and not quitting matters. And then I wrote on the side of my book, I really hate this. It has become the new cheese. And people talk about cheesy, slimy salespeople. I think this whole thing of not being a closer is... It's, it, I'm exploding here, Pricey. It's slimy. It is, yeah. It's more slimy than it putting on a suit, putting on shitloads of aftershave, getting a sunbed tan, having your teeth whitened, driving an M3, and referring to yourself as a closer. Give me that guy any day. Completely agree. Couldn't agree more. That truly is authentic. Yeah, at least he sat there saying, what about it? I'm a salesman. I'm going to sell you something. Oh, you don't want to buy it? Why not? Because of that. Well, if I can overcome that, will you buy it? Yeah, probably. I, I try to overcome it, but I can't. Well, I'm not going to buy it. Oh, okay, right. Who do you know who might buy it? Yeah. Have you tried my mate down the road? Your product might be right for him. Okay, would you introduce me to him? Yeah, all right, great, thanks. I'm off then. Sorry it wasn't right for you. Completely agree. That's the, the, uh, uh, give me that guy any day. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But this whole, hi, I'm wearing a Patagonia fleece and I'm not your sales guy. I'm your success leader. Let's move on, Jonathan. <laughs> so let's talk about trust because he talks about trust. I think I stopped at this point as the halfway point so that we can do the next show next week, Mike. So I reckon we should wrap up here at this point. So I think our listeners will hear us next week. They might even see the show on YouTube where we will do part two. This afternoon, you and I are interviewing the authors and that's going to be the theme of my interview with them is about the new cheese. The new cheese, right? I'm in. That's it now. I've coined it. I'm owning the phrase, the new cheese. I've got to go because I've got to write a quick LinkedIn post about it before you do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that, listeners, we'll speak to you next week. See you. Bye-bye. Bye.